Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I am your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined as always by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. Oh, it's so good to be here. It's good to be back. Yeah. Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. What if I told you, Dayton, Okay. that when you entered your password, it didn't really matter how important you know, that password was, like how long it was or even how complicated it was. Right, right. I mean, my, I myself, I iterate my passwords with five exclamation points for security one every year. But <laughs> yeah, your password is password exclamation point. <laughs> yes. Well, that's just because it's so new. But, but, what, but what if it wasn't the length or the uh-huh. complexity of the password that mattered, but how you held your phone or even how you entered the password itself? That would be interesting. Well, today we're going to be talking about this subject, something called behavioral biometrics. So behavioral biometrics, biometrics, as we've talked about in the past, is a fingerprint or a retinal scan or something that differentiates you from someone else. What would behavioral biometrics be? Well, we're going to get into that today with our guest. But, you know, just as a like sidebar, I guess, for it, it's going to be sort of things like how you actually behave while using your device is, mm-hmm. the, is the long short of it. But uh, we're going to get a clear picture of that when we talk to our desk. Uh, I see. So this technology could could know it's me if it sees me scroll through Facebook for for twenty five minutes. Uh, potentially, we'll have to see what our guest says about it. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so why behavior biometrics are so important, we're gonna come to see. But in particular, I want to illustrate one particular statistic before we get into it. The FBI's latest crime report from I believe this is from twenty eighteen uh, calls out the growing problem of SIM swapping to bypass passwords and socially engineered victims. You know. You might have heard about this on the popular podcast uh, Reply All, where they go into a case of this going on with someone's stolen Snapchat. Um, but yeah, as you know, these these schemes are continuously mounted and to such a degree that it amounts to about $1.7 billion in losses. It's pretty amazing how much damage is done through just like this large, wide-scale internet mm-hmm. weaponization of you right. know, just like cash credentials and password, you know, 500 of the most common passwords you can just get in. Yeah, and the technology itself to be able to do SIM swapping is not something that is inaccessible or it's not something that is incredibly difficult to do. No. It's it, inc- it's incredibly commodified and a lot of people can do it. So when you hear, you know, billions of dollars are lost through SIM swapping and other of this these credential stealings, it's not because like one organization is doing it. So many people from all over the world are doing it. There's a huge market for this kind of, of crime. And it, it's one of the easier ways to undermine two-factor authentication because you just spoof their their uh, phone number. And then you're right. getting the request to replace the password. Exactly. And every, every everything goes through your phone nowadays. That's true. So how would somebody combat this? Well, behavioral biometrics might actually be an answer to this. Let's go turn to our guests now to see what they have to say about it. So we're here with Anton Clipmark. In particular, I wanted to speak with you today because uh, where you work at Behaviosec, um, it's very interesting, the idea of behavioral-based security. I want to go into that, and but first got to ask a couple questions that our audience isn't going to be familiar with this. So how does uh, authentication with behavioral biometrics look? You know, it's easy to imagine putting a fingerprint on like a phone and then scanning it and then letting you in. But how would uh, how would you like check behavioral biometrics exactly? That's the, that's the fun part about it and kind of hard to sometimes context- contextualize for people because it's always in the background like 
it's not it's not something you're prompted to do. Mm-hmm. It's something that lies in the background. So like as you're behaving normally in an application, let's say it's a a website where you're signing in and you're doing some things within the website and then you you leave that application. Behavioral biometrics would be in the background. So as you're signing in, it will be looking at how you're typing, so like not necessarily what you're typing, but just the, the rhythm you have, the timings between keystrokes, the pressure if it's on a, a mobile device. How you move your cursor. Exactly, like how you're moving your mouse, that's also a thing. And then following you throughout the whole interaction in that application. So while a traditional biometric would be signing you in and then you're free to do whatever you want in that application, mm-hmm. with a behavioral system that's a continuous solution, you... Uh, you can follow the user continuously looking at all of these small micro patterns of like the t- typing, timing data and uh, pressure swipe, everything. So rather than like authenticating to get into a device, it's more authenticating to stay logged in. Yes, it can be used for that, absolutely. But so, you know, in this sort of assessment of behavior, it kind of relies on a baseline of like normalcy. Uh, would you mind saying like how long do you think it takes to like develop a, an idea of like how what is normal behavior does it is it fairly instantaneous or how much data you do you really need to be able to do that the short answer there is five to seven sessions uh, the long answer is uh, it, it really depends on the environment so mm-hmm. and and the users as well so we have, we have some customers where where we're looking at it that like high frequency users that really know their application that might be very tech savvy mm-hmm. uh, it can be enough with three to f- five sessions, and then we have a good profile on them. Wow, oh, that's impressive, honestly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, it's it's very, like, <laughs> I think it's impressive as well. Like, I, I work with this for years now, and I, I continue to be very impressed with what uh, what we're capable of. And uh, then, going back to your question, looking at it from like a general population, like looking at millions of people, it, it's usually in the, the five to ten sessions, and then more maybe in the in the higher end of that, so like around ten sessions. Is it normalcy per user, or is it sort of normalcy on like a network as a whole? It's usually more on the network as a whole. Mm-hmm. Like you, it it would depend on the the deployment kind of things. So like mm-hmm. it, it ver- like if you're only looking at like a a pin code, like maybe like six digit pin code, mm-hmm. it might take. Uh, X amount of time to, to train on the population there, while if you have a, a longer journey, maybe a, a full banking journey, mm-hmm. then then you get more data in each session. So yeah. it's, and, it's and all about seeing data. Certainly. And as you said, it, it's context-specific as yes. well. The different environments are going to have sort of different amounts of data that they need to be able to really assess normalcy. Um, so you have you know this baseline of normalcy. How do you account for sort of outside actors, you know, you know, potentially malicious actors as part of the normal behavior. Is it possible that that could be counted as part of normal, normal behavior? How do you how do you deal with that? We look on the behavior on on each individual user, so we don't look at it from a like like what's normal for this entire population. So if there's like one percent fraudsters, that will affect the ninety nine hundred percent. It's it's always based on your individual behavior. So as long as you're not a fraudster or someone tries to impersonate you being a fraudster, mm-hmm. uh, you, it, it shouldn't really affect that. Hmm. Okay. So it is, so it is behavior of the, of the user. Um, so it's behavior of, on, of the user on the network, and it sort of provides an overall assessment of what the normal behavior of a network is. Yeah, the normal behavior of the user on that, yes, in yes. that application, yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, so do you think, you know, for an attacker trying to, you know, get in, would they be able to mimic you know, a user's behavior? 
it's highly unlikely. <laughs> uh, yeah. And but that going to like normally in in a secure environment today, you're looking at so many different layers of security. So you have the credentials being one part, uh, mm-hmm. maybe IP and geolocation and device ID and all of these other factors. Something like behavioral biometrics is then an added layer on that. So you're already fighting many different things, and often attackers don't even know that behavior is a factor. Mm-hmm. And even if they know that, it's it's very very unlikely that they would have the same behavior as as the user. And then in a, in a normal attacking standpoint as well, uh, attacking accounts is quite expensive to do like manually. So yeah. it's typically done by something like credential stuffing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a lot of automation in, in yes. the attack. So is, is a lot of the behavior that is being assessed, um, is it better to differentiate? Is it able to like differentiate different users? Or is it better able to differentiate users from like machine operated you know, uh, trying to control. Like, if I have, uh, if I'm using Metasploit and I'm using that to access, you know, your root directory, is it more able to assess that I'm using like a tool, using like a machine automated process, or can it actually tell distinct users apart? With uh, with behavioral biometrics, it's it's really down to like layers of how we can do things. So, like in in a first level, it might be, is this a human or is this an automated action? Mm-hmm. And that's quite simple because uh, automation is usually repetitive or too perfect. Humans are a little bit imperfect yeah. and tend to vary over time. And then in, in like a second level, you can look at it from, is this a, a good human or a bad human? Like, uh, and that's also environment specific, of course. Mm-hmm. But is this human doing things that we've seen on this network before to be, to be malicious? That mm-hmm. like maybe it's uh, not having read them on things you should know, or maybe you're behaving like someone that's being scammed on the phone at the same time, like some uh, social engineering attack. And then on the on the third level, that unique level, it goes to like, is this really, like in, in my case, it would be like, is this Anton coming back into this application? And uh, on that level, uh, we're, we're quite unique in being able to, to distinguish that factor as well. So like you have a bunch of companies doing like the first level behavioral biometrics, a couple of more companies doing the second level, and then uh, uh, maybe us and one or two others that are even capable of doing this third level of like uniquely verifying a person just on behavior. So there's a lot of layers of behavioral biometrics that you could be using to assess what is normalcy. That's yes. quite interesting. So you know, with 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 BehavioSec specifically, you're saying that you know there, there's it gets quite granular. You're able to actually get a pretty good sense of the identity of the person. Yes, sir. It's more seeing, it's not about seeing that like the identity of a person, it's more right. about like, is this the same person that we've seen on this application before? So like, if, if you're coming with your credentials, we will look at, we've seen someone come in like on this credentials 10 times in the past, is this the same, mm-hmm. is this behavior consistent with that, that behavior? Do you think though that your behavior could sort of represent a sort of aspect of your digital identity, so to speak? I'm not speaking from like an identifiable way. It's sort of like your behavior is yourself on that network. Possibly, but more like in, in a more practical standpoint, it's more in combination with other factors. Mm-hmm. So it's generally like like behavioral biometrics can't really be used as an identifier alone. It needs to be combined with something like credentials or, mm-hmm. or, or other identifying factors, not just typing blindly and then ident- like looking at that and then identifying like who typed that that's mm-hmm. uh, 
it's an augment- in the future. Yeah. yeah, it's an augmentation. Yeah. So, like for, for instance, I could if it was just doing like a blind assessment of people typing on on a computer, it wouldn't easily just be able to say, oh, this person is Jacob because he types in this way. It would rely on um, a little bit more details, like other credentials and other uh, authentications that help prove that it is actually me. Exactly, and like that's the the differentiations from like a fingerprint, where like if I have your fingerprint and I run it in a database, mm-hmm. uh, I'll be able to see like is this Jacob. Mm-hmm. While if uh, if I've seen your behavior signing into a bank account, I can't use that behavior in like the the general population to see like who who did this. So it's more about verifying on a one-on-one basis than a one-to-many. So sort of ending our sort of technical overview of this. Who is the intended sort of user of behavioral biometrics? Well, uh, for me, it could be any anyone. <laughs> but uh, as with any like improvement in security, it tends to be the people with the most to lose tend to be the early adopters. So there, there's a reason why why we have a presence in DC. It's uh, we did some early work with uh, DARPA, and mm-hmm. uh, generally, it's it's a lot of banking customers. So like large financial institutions and banks tend to be our most of our customer base right now. Hmm. That's interesting. That's just an interesting sort of look at like who's who's early adopter technology. So it's more like an enterprise thing, though. It's not really like uh, something you can easily install in your house to authenticate, you know, people on your router. Uh, no, not today at least. But possibly in the in the future, you can do that to protect something. But uh, yeah, right now it's more the the ones with the most to lose tend to have the most to. <laughs> Game yep. with new technology. Well, it's fairly new. Yeah, it will have to <laughs> have to be some time before it's easily able to be adopted like that. Um, so the use of behavior biometrics is quite interesting in regards to how our current practices are for authenticating, specifically with passwords. So passwords have been used for quite some time, I believe, since the 1960s, the 1970s, and you know, very easy to exploit historically. Do you think that the movement towards behavioral biometrics is a way to sort of, uh, I guess, circumvent some of the weaknesses of a password, possibly even replace them eventually? Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of different technologies out there to kind of enhance and and strengthen the use of, like, normal username password credentials. And behavioral is certainly a factor in that. Like, behavioral biometrics doesn't have to replace an existing technology like a password. Mm -hmm. But... Certainly, like in the future, I, I, when we get to a point where we use even more layers in our security, like mm-hmm. I think that's the the key in all of this. That like it's not about replacing a single layer; it's always about just adding more layers and making them work better together and getting like a easy to use, safe environment in the future. Do you think that behavioral biometrics will be a way to sort of make security a little bit easier? Like from a cultural standpoint, it's very hard to remember how many passwords you have. You know, eventually you start reusing them. That itself is a security problem or you, you know, you have to use a password manager. Do you think that behavioral biometrics will be a way of sort of lessening the security burden on your head, you know, of, of remembering all these things, making it something that's passive, something that you're not having to actively think about, you know, something that, you know, as you said, would be probably combined with another form of authentication that would be uh, easier for you to remember. But do you think that is... Do you think behavior biometrics could be a push towards more, I guess, security culture-minded uh, future? Yes, absolutely. I think that what we do is, like, when you're talking about complex passwords and, and many different, like, password managers and everything, from my view, I prefer that you have an easy password. It's like, with behavioral biometrics, it's more about, you know, finding like the how you do things so like the rhythm you have and uh, people tend to be more rhythmic with something they know really well so 
instead of having a very complex password that you have to write down and have on a post-it note on your computer, you can just have like, you don't have to have the same password everywhere, <laughs> obviously, but uh, you can have a set of easier to remember passwords mm -hmm. that are then enhancedly protected by your behavior as well. So like uh, something we would regard as maybe a, a medium to weak password today could become an incredibly strong password if you add behavioral to it. Interesting. So do you, you know, it, it, this is kind of an interesting way of doing it. Like your password is authenticated by your behavior. It's kind of an interesting. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's that's pretty fun. Um, do you think that the sort of behavior profiles of these of these users are themselves, you know, they they, they could be a target of a potential hack? Do you uh, have? Sorry, excuse me. Um, they they are a potential target for attackers. Do you think that they have? You know, what sort of protections exist for that? You know, is there proper? Do you think that that's attackers are actually going to start targeting behavior? Attackers are probably going to start looking at how to sidepass behavior, but I, like targeting a behavioral profile in itself is is not really something that's worthwhile because uh, a profile tend to be both tied to individual users and that environment. So even if if I were to manage to steal a database of behavioral profiles from from a specific application, mm -hmm. they they're probably useless in every other application because they're so tied to that environment and, and very context specific. Yes. And it's also dynamic. So like people aren't static over time with with behavior. Like your your typing and your patterns and your swipe speed that changes slowly over time. So give it a few months or maybe a year or two and mm. <laughs> it's useless. That's interesting. It's almost like you need uh, an incredible amount of infrastructure to even be able to continuously process the behavior. Well, yes and no. It's it's quite lightweight, but uh, yeah, you need you need some <laughs> heavy lifting. Fair enough. All right, I just have one final question before we uh, part ways, but uh, it's kind of building off of my previous question: Is behavioral profiles are they PII themselves? Uh, short answer: No. Behavior behavioral profiles are based on your typing data. Like it's not what you're typing either, it's just uh, the keystroke and like the timing between keystrokes, the pressure used, like it's all, it's essentially in the same area as like an IP address or, or something else that's like dynamically sort of tied to a user. Mm -hmm. So it's not uh, it's not PII in itself. It, it can be used to identify things like who you are or race or mm -hmm. age or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a, a it's identifiable to to that user, but it's not like identifiable to you as a person. It's identifiable to you as a person in that specific environment, yes. or like rather not as a person. It's tied to your like credentials in that mm -hmm. case. But yeah, it's it's very environment specific, not something that's like globally used as a PII. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Anton. This has been very enlightening for uh, you know quite an interesting you know progression of how we're authenticating users. You know, it's. I think it pushes us forward towards how we deal with security on a daily basis. You know, it's really quite interesting. Well, well thank, thank you for, you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. So that was great talking with Anton. He was, you know, very descriptive of the sort of power of the technology and about where it is at. You know, it's still kind of in that nascent stage. And they did discuss how their approach differs from others, about how they're more granular than other approaches, you know, going pretty close to identifying users, specifically mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. user behavior on the network. Um, but you know, I want to talk about my own experience with the technology because I actually got to test this. Really? Yeah. So with Anton, he had a, he had his booted up on his computer. He gave me his login credentials, his username, his password. Mm -hmm. He entered it himself, showed me it worked. It 
it let him in because it recognized him. It gave him an assessment of how close he was to being Anton. Uh-huh, right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> like a percentage of yeah, uh, like a percentage. Of, yeah. How how Anton are you? Uh, but <laughs> it sounds like a BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> uh, yes, that's it. Could be. So I'm 85 percent Anton. Well, unfortunately, I was 0.01 percent Anton. Oh, so no. I did not get in, even though I had his username and his password. Really? And, you know, a lot of people think it's just like, well, I'll just enter it kind of slowly, or maybe enter it really fast because that would show that I would know it because mm-hmm. I have it memorized. But no, that's not even good enough. You just It would be nearly impossible for me as a human to, to emulate how he entered those exact keystrokes, how he moved his mouse. I, I don't know the exact assessment of how it decided it, but it, it was very clear that it knew I was not Anton, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty fun. That's incredible. That is incredible. So, you know, we, we talked a lot about the power of the technology, and we kind of only briefly touched about it, about how I asked the question about whether this is uh, personal identifier, well, I asked whether this is personal identifiable information, PII, Mm -hmm. and uh, they they said it was not because it was sort of context specific. Right, right. But um, how do do you feel about that? Well, so I think uh, PII, personally identifiable information, is the thing, right? It is the thing that you want to protect Mm -hmm. with with any kind of, of security apparatus, right? Especially one that it's like behavior of a specific person exactly exactly and so something like your name something like your address all these are important things that can point to you as being you Mm -hmm. right wouldn't um a data structure that tells you exactly how you would behave on a system also be information that could pinpoint you to you right i think right now because this as you said this is like a nascent technology and it's growing Mm -hmm. but you know 20 years from now when this this technology could be maybe super common mm-hmm. you know your profile your behavioral data mm. it could be identified to you it could be connected to you yeah at the moment it's context specific so that information might not be too valuable but the mm-hmm. question is like as it continues to grow becomes more widespread right. how how you know transferable is that information yeah. and in- how and how easily that information can be connected to other sources of information yes that's very true and another aspect of that, I mean, while we did also talk about the sort of sensitivity of the data itself, would a hacker try to go after that? You know, it's an odd target to try to target someone's behavioral data. Right, right. But, you know, an, uh, I would say a evolution of a phishing scheme from mm-hmm. merely stealing someone's username and password. You know, you send them a link, they click on the link. Yeah. My father told me he often fails at that. You know, it's very hard to do that. You know, you click on it, you fill in the login credentials, all that uh-huh. jazz, and they just steal your login credentials. But what if they're not just stealing your login credentials? Right. They're like recording how yeah, you yeah. enter your login exactly. credentials and then they do it as a replay attack. They just use that exact, uh, they're just copying exactly how your monitor is being used at that time. Right, exactly, exactly. That's something that they're going to have to uh, think about in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, there's these sort of adaptions that we need to be thinking about. But, you know, there, there's obviously those hacker adaptions. But, like, what about adaptions to how the person changes? Uh-huh. You know, you, you were talking about this earlier to me. Well, yeah, I think um, there, the whole idea is that you create a baseline on how a person behaves on their system or on their computer, mm-hmm. um, like in the login. Mm-hmm. And Anton, like, had a specific way that he would type in his password, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that people are dynamic and people aren't static, mm-hmm. right? So let's say there's an, there, this is an edge case, obviously, but like if this is, an, is this technology that's proliferated across every computer, edge cases are not edge cases, they are the cases, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you have carpal tunnel or let's say, you know, you're, <laughs> let's, let's say like one of your hands is like, you know, you're talking to somebody else and you're, you know, you're typing in your password with one hand. Or to the extreme, somebody right. cuts off your hand, you know? It, or someone cuts off your hand, right? So mm-hmm. does that mean like you're going to be stopped 
every 15 seconds or kicked out of your system. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, obviously they probably have thought about this and this technology that's growing, but um, I would be curious to see how you would update this, right? Because this would have to be a living, a living, like in the sense that it's always authenticating, it, it needs be to be constantly learning, learning yeah. right? And so can it really tell the difference between someone who is logging into your computer that's not you for the first time mm-hmm. or you that is just for some reason without this program's knowledge, drastically changed the way that you interact with the system. I believe we talked a little bit about this and they, they you know, Anton mentioned that the, you know, that they, they were able to change like slowly over time. But mm-hmm. I wonder if like through an extreme circumstance of like, you know, like a missing hand, if they would have right. to just reset what is normalcy for this person. It's mm-hmm. hard to say. Yeah. But, you know, we're still kind of talking about this all in sort of the enterprise space. You know, this isn't really, mm-hmm. as, he, as he mentioned. This is this research. Is more, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is more like, you know, in the financial sectors was yeah, using yeah. this first versus like, you know, this is your phone is now checking this individually for you for exactly some services providing this right. to you. So widespread adoption is like an interesting aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like who's going to start using this first? I right. mean, the idea is, I mean, it would be, I, I think, fairly beneficial to have right. this sort of continuous assessment, you know, mm-hmm. of, yeah. your, of your security. It would certainly cut down on, I think, it would certainly make it more complicated to have your credentials hacked. Mm-hmm. And I think like everywhere else in the security space, like we've, we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum, right? Mm-hmm. But the person is always the weak link in the mm-hmm. chain and security, right? And that every other step of, of security mm-hmm. is automated, mm-hmm. is continuous, is constantly doing authorization, right? So the reasoning would go, well, why, why aren't you also constantly evaluating if the humans using your system are who they are? It's sort of an inversion of the human is the weakest link. The human has now suddenly become the strongest link because- right. It's hard to emulate human behavior. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost like a Turing test constantly going on. (laughs) But it's even more than that. It's like a Turing test and then also a personality quiz as you as you continuously go. Exactly. It's like it's like a Skynet and BuzzFeed together, just Mm -hmm. constantly watching and learning and Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Little did you know that BuzzFeed is this whole time. This is not true. <laughs> I just want to point this out. <laughs> but little did you know, BuzzFeed this whole time has just been using all those uh, which Disney princess quizzes that you have to, uh, you know, combat the future of right. behavioral biometrics. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're you're typing away, and it's like, oh, by the way, are you an Ariel or are mm-hmm. you a Snow White? Mm-hmm. And you know, you're like, oh, I'm definitely an Ariel, and it's like wrong. You were Snow White all yeah. along. Get yeah. out of here. Get out of here. Yeah. You failed. You failed the <laughs> test. You, know, you should have deliberated longer. I mm. saw how long you took for question 13. Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And so now there's a question of like down the line, uh, hackers or social engineers rather will, uh, maybe there will be like an online game that appears on a social media site where it's like, oh, hey, click these things and like get a prize. Mm-hmm. And it will track the way that you do it and create a similar profile with a smaller data set. Right. It's very possible. I mean, it, it depends, you know, how much sort of accuracy you need to have to impersonate someone. Right. Um, but, you know, dwelling a little bit more on the widespread use of this. So let's say we had this technology on a phone. We didn't talk about this with Anton because it's not really relevant to mm-hmm. the current technology. But this is more like a speculative analysis. It's, you know, with biometrics like your fingerprint, you can be compelled via the Fifth Amendment to produce that to unlock a phone. You can't right. be compelled to provide a password. Do you think a behavioral biometric, like how you hold the phone or maybe how you move or type could be used to identify if that phone was yours right probably and, not in isolation but yeah exactly and uh, what's more if we're gonna go like farther down the line like law enforcement mm-hmm. right law enforcement using technology or anyone using any technology for someone who isn't there to give access or give um mm-hmm. you know verification to use that technology is incredibly common mm-hmm. right if you're a criminal and there are forensics going on and you need to like analyze someone's computer or if a loved one of yours has passed away and you're going through their technology to get information about banks or whatever, yeah. 
like having continuous authorization would be very difficult for both of those groups of people to be able to do that job. Right. I didn't think about that latter case. That's interesting. Exactly. So imagine, you know, you're going through someone who you care about and they're longer, no longer with you. They can't, that behavior, that credential is lost. Mm -hmm. Right. That aspect of differentiating yourself using the system is no longer applicable. Right. So there would need to be some kind of override or some kind of, um, it could be even like a, 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 a ghost, a something, a, yeah, a ghost typing behind you. Yeah. Um, or it would be something that would be in like someone's like last will and testament. Like these are lists of things you have to do. You have to make sure you, you, uh, disable my con- continuous authentication. Otherwise you won't be able to get access to my bank account. Interesting. Right. That'll be, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. I mean, again, this is not where the mm-hmm. technology is at. And I should also really press on the case that, the, you know, this technology by bio, behavior biometrics is not a replacement to a, like a password. Mm-hmm. It's something that serves to augment current practices. Exactly. It still requires right. you to have, you know, um, credentials that are valid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to just straight up replace that. So I think in terms of the Fifth Amendment question, it serves to continuously, it serves to aid the authentication. I don't think it could be used solely to say this person's phone is this person's phone. Right. But, you know, I, I couldn't tell you entirely, but that would be my, that would be my guess is that it wouldn't, requ- mm. you could not be compelled to use that to open a phone. Um, but, uh, you know, let's talk about one last thing. And mm. that's kind of like a fun sort of vision of the future still. And do you think this represents like a cultural change about how we look at, uh, you know, security and credentials? Well, I, I think it it already has in a way just now with us with us talking about it and us like, you know, hearing from Anton and, and their, their team. Um, the idea that once you have the keys to the door, mm-hmm. that you're safe and that you're good to go, mm-hmm. right? That the door preventing other people giving access is security, right? But the idea of security, the paradigm that's being shifted here is that, sure, you have a door that you get into, but also there's lasers that are always scanning you and making sure that you are who you say you are, right? There's someone mm-hmm. constantly checking, oh, you know, imagine walking to your house after you open your key and there's a butler is like, you are Jacob, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm Jacob, I'm Jacob. And then five minutes later, he's like, you're still Jacob, right? And you're like, yes, 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 you know? So I think, the whole idea of like, it's no longer just about putting up walls Mm -hmm. for the social engineering aspect, but now it's walls and checking that when, if you're the people who within those walls are who they say they are. Mm -hmm. I think that's eloquently put. I think that this is hopefully sort of change on how we view security. I mean, Mm -hmm. for a very long time, the idea of network security was all about just trying to keep people out, but you know, realistically that's not feasible. Right. And, you know, that is that sort of paradigm has shifted over the years. And I think this may be a shift of how credentials are viewed right. over time. So I, I would be interested to see how that continues to develop. Yeah. And I think something that, that we were talking a bit about uh, off mic was how this could move something from security as being an active thing mm-hmm. that like you put in a password and that is your act of security, right? Like as a user to something that is in the back of your mind that you're you're always doing acts of security if your behavior is always always authenticating that you are who you say you are. Mm-hmm. So we talked about how it relates directly to cybersecurity, but let's talk a little bit about how behavioral biometrics could be used from other sources. Yeah. Let's go dystopian. Let's go a little dystopian. <laughs> My favorite part of Decrypted, the Jacob and Dayton's dystopia corner. It's a, we should rename the podcast dystopia, <laughs> uh, but you know, probably too, probably already used anyway. So, Behavior biometrics, their value kind of, you know, for security, you know, it varies and the utility of it might vary. But what about behavioral biometrics that are being collected about you when you go to a site? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it's particularly far-fetched that as the technology advances, or perhaps even now, we don't know. But, 
you know, you go to a site and it gathers how you move on that site, which links you click, right. how you I, type a comment. And this is already being done for a lot of online vendors, right? Um, there is something called uh, time to time to time to purchase, time to buy. There you go. It is a metric that's used by Amazon, that's used by eBay, that measures the amount of time that it takes for you to once you get on the site to once you make your make your purchase, right? Mm-hmm. So this could be you know having security systems do this and having them collect a profile. Mm-hmm. So I think this is where the difference is, right? Yes. The difference is it being connected to a profile. Yes. Right. Because usually this is done to just increase uh, the someone going through the process of buying something, yeah. right? Um, or like having advertisements, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. websites, a lot of websites know where your mouse is on the screen and mm-hmm. have done studies to figure out where people are looking when they're on a computer. Mm-hmm. And so this is already done in a way. But it's, but, not, it's not being attached to an identity. But I don't, I'm not positive, but I don't think it's being attached to an identity. At least not right now. Right. But what exactly. if it, but what if it was in the future, you could yeah. use that to identify someone, even if they were using technologies to obfuscate their identity, you're ignoring mm-hmm. the, the, the browser, you ignore their IP, you ignore a lot of traditional things that you would try to use to determine who they are. And instead you're looking at who they are as a person. Right. Right. That would be interesting. I don't know if the technology will become that advanced to simply for it without any account information, just to, from a behavioral profile that you can say, this mm-hmm. person based off of my stores of data on all these people resembles this person here, which yeah. would be a pretty big invasion of privacy if it was the case. But you know, this is speculative. Let's, mm-hmm. let's hope it doesn't come to that. Right. Right. Exactly. Like imagine someone, um, imagine eBay, for instance, like eBay isn't going to do anything like this, obviously, but like eBay scanning the way someone goes to their site can mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, this person is this this account is logged in. We know how this person is moving around this website. We can take our profile of this person on our website, and you know, like I, what's really interesting to me is how this data is structured and how it's stored, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously, they're, they're, the Anton isn't going to share how like they store profile information, mm-hmm. but if it's easy enough and if it's portable enough, like mass usage, like big data usage of a lot of people's profiles is incredibly interesting and it could, you could use it to, to make advertising and make selling things even better. Right. Which you imagine, how can you do that? How can you make it even like more economical, but you totally good. I, I would agree with, but getting back on track to the technology at hand, I think what behavior sec is sort of talking about what Anton's talking about is definitely an interesting view for how security may develop. I think we are looking at a cultural shift potentially in the coming years about how, you know, continuous verification is going to look like. Yeah, I think we're moving away from the idea that your credentials themselves are enough and that there needs to be some sort of continuous verification. I think I think this is something to be continuously looking at as we go forward. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorp program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.